Welcome to Paddy Talks, brought to you thanks to Seed Golf Balls, who deliver you affordable to performance, same performance, half the price. Check them out at www.seedgolf.com and try them today. Thank you for pressing play. On today's show, we have a man I have a lot, a lot of time for. One of the best custom fitting outfits in the country, if not Europe, if not globally. Derek Murray from 4Golf Custom is with us for a chat. But first, as Gabe Byrne would have said, roll it there, Colette. I mean, it, listen, we're talking about practice. Joe Bradley told us the production line was finished in Kerry. Well, Joe Bradley, what do you think of that? Donald Donovan is the last quarterback. He hits it. He hits it. It's over the bar. Oh, holy Moses. It's all on this. Welcome to the show, thank you for pressing play. On this week's show we have a man I know for, uh, I think it's about four years. It's Derek Murray from 4Golf Custom. Probably too long to be fair, but nice to see you Paddy, how are you? I'm grand. You're, you're another person who I stalked for years on social media. <laughs> I'm quite worried about sitting beside you now at this point. <laughs> well, you're, you're in my house now. So. <laughs> <laughs> but come here to me, so I love equipment. It's the reason I went to college. Uh, tech was my thing. Um, and that's why I love talking to you because just the whole excitement you, you I think you share have even more excitement about tech and, and product yeah. than I do which is I, I'd sit down and talk about it for hours yeah. um, but for you I suppose a question I ask I'm trying to ask people who come on the show is what is your earliest golfing memory? Um, my, I guess my earliest golfing memory is my grandfather, who would be my dad's dad, Kieran. He, 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 he passed away a couple of years ago. He was in his late 90s. Um, and he was the golfer of the family. So my earliest memory of golf is him and Royal Dublin and Caddian and Christy Senior and Christy Junior in Royal Dublin. That would be my earliest kind of flash memory I, I guess I would be 10 maybe 11 and I was late to the game so I didn't I didn't play until I was you know I suppose 18 19 really I mean I hit balls with granddad and he'd say hit that shot out of there and hit that shot out of there but I didn't have my have my own clubs or I didn't have you know <clears throat> I didn't go playing golf when I was like 12 and 13 or anything like that so I was into soccer and football I wasn't really into golf at an early age but that's my earliest memory of golf that's serious memories. That's like serious nostalgia for a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because I can quite clearly remember being in Royal Dublin and not having a jacket on. And I can clearly remember the barman going and getting me a man's jacket to put on to go into the clubhouse, to go into the bar. Okay. Because granddad said, you can't come in without a jacket and tie. And I had it and he gave me his tie, put it around my, on my shirt. And I remember wearing this big, huge, massive blue uh, blazer in the bar upstairs in Royal Dublin. And then I also remember playing snooker on the snooker table down there. And I remember sitting around when Grandad was playing cards. And my grandfather was a, was, a, was, a, was, a, was a superman. He retired real early and he devoted himself to playing golf. And he played golf all over the world. And he played in everything, tournaments, pro-ams. And we, when, when he passed away, I remember we got some, yeah, some photographs in a suitcase. And it was like photographs of him with Bob Hope. And Crikey. Yeah, he was like proper, drop everything, go play. And he'd been all on their own playing golf and prime, so he knew everybody. Uh, but he was the god for the family. So where did you go from uh, picking up your own golf clubs late teens to running what I call 
the world leader in custom fitting outfits. So where, where do we start getting into the industry? Yeah, so I had uh, spent a bit of time in the US uh, out there. My dad was out there working and we went out to the US. And when we came back, we, we moved to Straffan. And while I was going through school, I, I wanted to go on the radio. I wanted to be a DJ and that's what I wanted to do. And I still have this mad passion for music. So I, you know. So the first question in the Q&A, you'll fly. Okay, cool. Uh, I'm glad that's out of the way early. Uh, but while I was kind of DJing and I was on the radio in, in a pirate radio station in Dublin and kind of doing my thing, I needed to get a job. And my grandfather knew Ernie Jones, who was the head pro of the K-Club when it first opened. And he said to me, hey, why don't you go down and work at the K-Club? It's like two minutes down the road from me. I'm like, oh, I don't have anything. I don't know about golf. I don't know anything about it. And I played a little bit, but I wasn't anything. He said, no, no, you'll like it. It's, it's cool. So... What that did was that 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 early uh, K Club. You have to remember the K Club was the first five star red star hotel in Ireland, first golf resort in Ireland, pretty much. And they set the bar in terms of this whole five star customer experience. So at the time, there was like the the who's who of <clears throat> business and golf were there. And so I went into this environment where I got a job working at the concierge first, and then I got working in the pro shop there, and that's when I started playing. But what we were exposed to was the, the, the quality of service. So how to look after people, how to meet and exceed their expectations, and how to under-promise and over-deliver. And we were brought into this world where, you know, five stars was something that didn't exist in Ireland, and we were pushed every inch of, and I got great training, and I met some phenomenal people who helped mold me into a what was a five-star, I guess, concierge to a point because the pro shop, if you're working in the pro shop as, an, I guess, an assistant, it's all about, you know, looking after people and knowing how to, you know, work the system as it were. So that exposed me to, to five-star service. <clears throat> and when I left the K-Club, I did a few jobs about setting up some golf stuff for different people. But in the back of my head was that retailing golf didn't really have a five-star service outside of these country clubs. And I said, what if we brought this kind of five-star service to the, to the public? And then that was married with, well, what if we had a five-star service to the public, but what also if we had this kind of a, a club customization that I'd seen on tour? So I'd been out on tour with Philip Walton and... Uh, Just roll back the clock a second. So you moved from Cape Club and did a couple of um, <coughs> things, Godfights for people. But what was the trigger that got you on tour custom fitting? Yeah, so Raymond Burns was the head, was the, was the touring pro. Raymond uh, was the touring pro of the K Club. And I, I took a year out and we and he said to me, hey, why don't you come out and hang out on tour with me? So we went out, I went out with Raymond and I met, you know, Philip and uh, Francis Howley and uh, David Higgins and all these guys were out on tour. And I traveled around to a few events and just hung out kind of thing. Did a bit of caddying, which was fine. But while I was out there, I got onto the Mizuno truck. And at the time, Mizuno was run by a guy called Barry Willett. He was the head pro of Royal St. George's. <clears throat> Another guy called Andy Kickadass. And Andy Kickadass was the tour director for Mizuno. And at the time, they were the only tour truck basically out on tour. They were the, the sort of main tour truck for the PGA and or for the European tour. And uh, they had a, a contract which made that we're at every event. And so I, I was hanging around at the events and saw this truck. Thought, it's interesting. It looks like Formula One went in and in there is Faldo and Seve and Woosnam and like you know the who's who well the classic guy yes yeah. 
<clears throat> and I was intrigued as to how they were in there making finite adjustments to the equipment, thinking, oh, if I adjust this and if I bend this and if I change that up and if I move that, the conditions are a bit windy, so I'm going to knock it down a little. And then if I do this, I was just intrigued that this went on because it's a whole other slide of golf that, you know, I was just thought, this is really interesting. And it's the service element. So like Andy is working with the pros, he's out on the range, they're hitting balls, he's back in the truck, he's moving stuff and shaping stuff. So then I thought, well, okay, if we marry this five-star service that I've been trained in, that I know very well, and if we brought this, I guess, customization or adjusting of golf clubs, that wasn't a new thing, by the way. Like, people are building clubs since whenever, the year dot. But what if we brought this to the public? And it made me think that if these were the best pros in the world and these had the best abilities in the world, surely they could play with anything. Why, why would they need to make small adjustments if they're brilliant? Surely they could play with anything. What would happen if I took those, that, this, this process, if you will, and then adjusted and made, and made it for the public? Would the public benefit? Would it be better for the, for the public given that the skill level wasn't as high? So are you bridging the gap between the product and the skill level by maneuvering it to suit the player based on, you know, the, the golfer based on their miss or their inability or their, you know, if they struggle to get the ball in the air, could I make the ball fly better? <clears throat> and that started a journey then of discovery. The what if, what if I did this? What if I did that? What if I changed the grip? What if I, what if I changed the weight? Wow, what if I pulled the weight from the head and put it back into the shaft? What would that do? And I used to go down to the range here at Nice at night and, and do free fittings from, I used to finish the work at six and I go to the range at seven, I'd be there till 10 and just standing on the range, giving people free advice on equipment. And, you know, it was like my learning ground, how to, what to, what if I did this and this shaft and that shaft. And then I started to submerge myself into the training. So I, I literally, anywhere that I could go where I could learn something. So I went to Ping in Arizona. Philip wrote a note and, and uh, I got an invite to go there and I went there. Uh, went to Carlsbad to California, went to Callaway when they, when, when Eli Callaway was still there. And I met Eli Callaway and I met Richard Helmstetter and Richard Helmstetter just said, oh, here's a kid really, really interested in the, in, in the science of this. So let's give him whatever support we can give him. Um, and Mizuno were fantastic. They helped me a lot trying to learn. And, and then I met the guys from Cleveland Golf. And there's a guy called David Richelot, he's a French guy. And they were owned by Rosignol, the, the ski company. So, <clears throat> and a guy called Loic Monchalan. He was the, the guy working on the truck. And another guy then called Jan Massonet. And these were guys that basically took me in basically. I went to an event, I got onto their truck, they, they, they asked for some help. And then they came to Ireland and two of them went down sick and I got a call to say, hey, listen, do you want to come hang out in the truck, work on the truck? We got some sick reps and we could do with a dig out. So I said, yeah, sure. And I didn't know that it was the European Open and the, the truck hadn't been out on tour for three and a half months because it does that like Dubai swing and by the time the, tr the, the truck came out on tour, they hadn't been out for three months. So I rock out on, I rock up to this event, meet the guys. And the next thing is we got orders for, I think it was 186 wedges. On a Monday, Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> on a Tuesday. Yeah. Because the, the players didn't come in till late because it's a Europe event. So they, they rock in a Tuesday. We got 186 wedges on order. So, and we delivered 186 odd wedges that day into the bags delivered. Now we had an 83% wedge count on tour back then. And I started doing grinds and Luik was great. He allowed me to help and to submerge myself in it. Then we met another guy called Ian Clark. He was on the truck as well for a while. And these guys took me in and just, you know what? It was just one of those, you were in the right place, right time. And I learned huge amounts. 
and I was given an immense amount of trust to go out and talk to players on the range and discuss, you know, the course, the setup, the bunkers. And then you do this whole debrief before the tournament. You go in there on a Sunday and check the rough, check the speed of the greens, check the depth of the bunkers, grain of the bunkers, first cut, second cut, you know. So you had like a debrief of the course and the players would arrive and say, right, what do I need this week? Well, you're going to need low balance because it's this or it's hard pan or whatever, blah, blah, blah. Five-star service. Right, five-star service. So all we did really was we flipped something that was already there and just made it more for the public. Now, that was complicated because... You know, on, I didn't realize till I came off the tour and started to have the business that, you know, it doesn't work like that in the real world. <laughs> on, on tour is a whole different show because no one's paying for anything. But when you need to bring it down, and the reason we did it was because you couldn't get, you know, that five-star service. Certainly in Ireland, you couldn't get it. And it wasn't even in the UK at that time. But this is, you have to understand, this is mid-90s. Um, and so we, I said, look, I'm going to, let's push hard and see if we can do this. So we started for golf in 97, a back street in Nace. Nace is the place. <clears throat> That's where I grew up. It's where I was born. I kind of knew it. And I kind of, you know, there was a good vibe for it. We had a really good little building. I got a great, you know, I'd be a good reaction type of person. And I got a great gut reaction off this. So we went with it and we started it in the back streets in Nace. Um, but it was tough, man, I tell you. Because we, we had to get component because I couldn't get the quality of build that I was used to on tour. You have to remember, I go to the range with a player and I do a driver spec. I walk over, I hand it to Luik in the truck and I say, I need a 45 and a quarter inch driver at D3 and I need it, you know, spined or whatever. And he just goes, bum, bum, bum. 35 minutes later, bum, out comes the driver, hands it to the player. Perfect. Maybe a little bit of adjustment. Perfect. And then you do that into the industry and you send I always say that it's like if you're going to McDonald's and you order a cheeseburger, perfect, this thing comes out in three minutes flat and it's all good. You say cheeseburger, no ketchup. That's like a two day wait. <laughs> and, that, <laughs> and that was yeah. the problem in the industry. They weren't used to stopping it in the line and making finite adjustments to it to suit a specific you know, way. So then I had to push for component. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do. That was a, a four or five year slog to get components. Can you explain that to me a little bit <clears throat> in terms of there is a difference and I feel the difference and I'm not that good a player but like I feel the difference between being custom before golf and in previous institutions or might be the wrong word but previous um, vendors of custom fitting and that was I got custom in the States I got custom fit in a um, large multinational golf store yeah, yeah sure uh, well, there's, there's different levels though that's different so is that is that the difference in level plus the expertise and the on-site building zero tolerance workshop you have in terms of well, because you have that component space that that's kind of a part it's like it's like making a cake there's different parts to it that we, we have to hit in order for the whole thing to work um, the, the, the main part of it is you know the, the best thing about the, the, the most important thing about fitting is knowledge and experience is, is you do enough of them and you start to understand it real easy and it doesn't it's not a complicated you know figure out the type of you know lead the player has the way he drops in the way the shaft rotates the way he rotates it all becomes quite you know it's a bit like when you go to see a really good doctor or specialist and you go in and you go oh I've got this thing I've got this you know yeah, rash this lump the difference between the guy goes, the guy goes and a good oh, yeah, right it's exactly the same thing you know the guy puts you go I've got this pain in my neck it's actually your back and it's just it's experience and knowledge that that's the difference but then no matter how good the fitter was if the person making the clubs isn't on the same level then it doesn't work 
And if you're very finite about specifically, so if I say, well, look, I met Paddy and, you know, he, he likes a D3 swing weight because that's the balance weight he likes. Uh, we No one knows why. Paddy doesn't even know why. But I know that if it was lighter, he wouldn't like the connection between it. And if it was heavier, he wouldn't like it or he wouldn't be able to feel the head or whatever the, whatever the scenario is. If you can't translate that to build, well, then no matter how good the fitter is, the, the club doesn't work. And we learned this really early on because I used to order stuff. You know, I, you know, go to the fitting, had the knowledge, had the experience, had something uh, better now. My boss says, you don't get better, you get quicker at your decision making. So I'm quicker at my decision making, not better. Uh, but I used to order it and you come in and it wouldn't be how I expected it or how I wanted it for the player. So I would refuse it. I said, that's, that's way out. That's not the right length, not the right thing. And they go, well, look, we have tolerances within the industry and, you know, we're building 4,000 clubs here an hour. You know, you're asking us to kind of, you know, do something that's, and I used to get the, this isn't the tour, you know, you're not, you're not, <laughs> you're not building clubs for Seve Ballesteros here. You're building clubs for, for Paddy Lynch. You're not, you know, and I'm going, yeah, but Paddy's paying for it mm. and he wants it right. And I want it right. So how do we do this? And it took years for us to spin that, to get the heads. And now thankfully we get the heads. Um, and I think the business, well, we used to rework it all is what used to happen. Dad and I would spend hours down in the shop, pulling stuff apart and rebuilding it because it wasn't right. And it used to frustrate the hell out of my dad because he was like, why, why can't they make it? It's as easy to make it. He used to say, it's as easy to make it D3 as make it D2. It's as easy to make it right as make it wrong. And I say, yeah, but they're not used to, you know, being guided by a very specific. So we had to bring that in house. So then we could control the quality of what came out and we could control the quality of what we needed. And we marry those two together and the whole thing works. Nobody understands why we build the clubs. And that's the real reason is because I can't match A and B to make C. By the way, the, sorry, the, the reason you can feel it is because it's built that way based on what we assessed you for. And you can tell the difference because it's all matched and aligned. The shafts are all matched. The weights are all matched. The clubs are all matched. So there's no differentiation and the tolerances are really tight because that's the only way it works. It doesn't work any other way. Any other way is not working. If it was any way to work, and if it was a better way of doing it, I'd be doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose that's something that I love go, going back to your place for is that you're always, it's not done is better than perfect. It's let's make this better. That's kind of your mantra for. Yeah, it's, it's funny. That's, that's the thing. Um, that's the thing I learned as well when I, on my travels. And I've, I've been over to the US to do a few different things over there with, with, with places. And one of, the, one of the things that always resonated with me was that it's never done. Uh, and I always like to say we're always work in progress. And even like today, we were having planning meetings for 2020 um, and what we're going to do and how we're going to make it better and how we're going to keep it moving. So it's never done. Um, and I like to think that that's the way I think that it's, it's always this strive to be better, you know, so it's never finished. It's always work in motion or that sign with the, the men at work thing. It's always men at work. Yeah. Yeah. There's not one person doing and five people watching like the council, is it? Oh God. No, no. We're, we're, we're a strong family. Uh, and then we've got Mark and Dave and we work as a, as a, I like, can, we, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a, you know, cliche teamwork, but we really have to work as a team because we're small and we're tight and we're family. So if we don't work together as a team, it kind of falls apart a bit, but yeah, no, there's not four people watching and one guy on the shovel. No, it's, it's all men, all shoulders to the wheel. Uh, I have one question. Well, I want one question, but I, want, I have one particular question. So you set up shop literally in 1997. Yeah. And a certain Tiger Woods came on the scene in 1997. Yeah. Was that a help? Oh my God. I mean, he, he's my hero. I've met the man a couple of times and had, some, had a great luxury to spend some time with him. And 
uh, he's uh, he was brilliant. Uh, he's my hero, genuinely, hundred percent. I absolutely loved the man. I had the luxury of meeting him down at Mount Juliet at the WGC and spent some time with him down fishing. And he literally blew me up out of the water, quite literally. He's one of those people. It's gas. I've met a couple of people in my lifetime, but he's he's one that takes your breath away because he has that that aura, that presence, you know. And I said to him, "Hey, I really need to get a photograph with you because." You know, no one's going to believe that I've met you, right? And this is before like mobile phones where you just switch to hit the button, yeah. right? So he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, it's a bit complicated to get a photograph, but let's figure it out. So he was down in Mount Julia. So he goes, okay, so what's going to happen is I'm going to come to the range. I'm going to go to the far end of the range, right down the bottom left. He said, I'm going to hit balls there for probably about, I don't know, 13, 15 minutes. He said, I'll go through the clubs. I'll walk back up. I'll probably talk to maybe five or six people on the way back up. I'm going to come back up and I'm going to hit putts. When I hit putts, he says, and I walk up the, the, the I walk up the um, towards the, the trailer where you are. I was on, I was with Cleveland at the time. He says, "I want you to say, hey tiger,' and then I'm going to go, hey Irish, and then I'm going to shake your hand and make sure you have something there to take a photograph." So that morning, I'm like awake at four thirty a.m. <laughs> and I'm you know literally hanging. And that's the time when we had those, you know, the the, the wedding photograph things, the click wine, click wine. Yeah, yeah. That's all I had. So I didn't have like a digital camera, I didn't have a photographer because this was done like on the fly, it was quite quick because it was the day before he told me we'd do it. So anyway, he arrives. <laughs> I must have waited five hours in the window looking for him to come, like child of Christmas job. He walks down the range, hits down a few balls, walks back up, talks to a few people, walks up. I think, oh my God, this is just mind blowing stuff. He walks up the hill towards me. I go, hey, Tiger. He goes, he looks at me as if to say, who's this guy? <laughs> and then he goes, oh, hey, Irish. And he walks, and whatever way he grabbed my hand, he grabbed my hand and he spun me around. I swear to God, it was like dancing on the stars. It was like one of those pirouette things. And I spin around, my friend walks over, click, takes photograph, winds it and walks away. I don't think he's allowed to do photographs. And certainly not at that time. Usually what happens is you probably get a bill in the post for six and a half grand or something. Because I don't, that's not the value by the way, but I just, I'm assuming. And then security come running over and then it's gone and he walks away and it's all done. I swear to God, I waited two days to bring that thing into the camera place. So that I could get the, and I'm standing around and goes, it'll be ready in half an hour. And I'm like, no dude, it'll be ready now. You'll be putting that through that machine right now. And of course, out comes this absolutely perfect photograph of me and the Tigre. And then I bring it to the uh, Open in, uh, the following year I brought it to the Open in uh, Carnoustie. And uh, it was the year that uh, uh, Rory was the amateur. And I'm standing on the range with Rory McIlroy and his girlfriend at the time, and no one knew who he was. And I was primarily at that event. I would work there for the event, but I was primarily there to get tired to sign the 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 picture which he duly did and he said hey great pick <laughs> I'm like yeah <laughs> like four million more moving parts but yeah it's all good but I still have photograph but that's that's he came along at that time and he he literally he he made it for everybody in golf and he made it for us so it was a lot of the, it was just good time so next next steps is you're starting all the components <laughs> it's circa I'm guessing a few years on 2005 what has been the development of golf like from those initial few years of getting everything together contractually, component-wise, to now. So what really stands out, I suppose, is in real big moments that have changed the industry, either tech-wise, marketing-wise, between in the last 15 years. Wow, we bought a tour truck, so we had our own tour truck. That was a big thing for us, and that gave us kind of this kind of tour feeling. I still wish we kind of had it, cause, but it, it just, because we moved into Killeen Castle, it, did, we didn't, it didn't work for us there. But the truck was a big part of our 
process moving forward. I mean, we designed this truck myself and my dad and we, we built it ourselves. You could hit balls out of the side of it and it was fabulous and we loved it and everyone loved it. And then I was conscious of getting into bricks and mortar. Uh, we had a, a small kind of a wooden, wooden cabin kind of a building and we needed to get into bricks and mortar. And then um, we moved to Killeen Castle uh, just after uh, the Solheim. And that was kind of a big moment for us because it, it put us into a, a place, a home as such. And before that, the truck was a big part of our sort of progress. I bought TaylorMade's old tour truck and then I built my own. And for, for about 10 months there, a small company in Ireland had the biggest tour truck on, in Europe. We had a bigger tour truck than everybody on tour. Uh, and it was five foot longer and it was 10 foot higher than everyone else on tour. We rocked up to tour events and Everyone was like, Jesus, look at this guy. Who's this guy with the truck? My God, we did a couple of tour events, a couple of senior tour events, and it was great. In terms of <clears throat> in terms of the marketing end of it, I guess, I guess, you know, my sister Jill came into the business and she brought a real fresh outlook. She doesn't play golf. She's no interest in golf, but she has a really good handle on the look and the feel and the design and the layout and the colors. And she brought a huge part to the business. Um, and gave it kind of more of an image. Um, and she helped on me a lot in the social media and the, the guess how we were perceived and how we were viewed. Because I knew we could build clubs and that was easy. Well, easy-ish. And I had dad obviously helping and my, my mom, Christine, was there as well. And, and then Jill came into the business. She provided a really good, strong, like different outlook to everything. And she's been phenomenal in terms of the business, like phenomenal. I don't tell her enough, so hopefully she'll hear this and she'll see. Um, but that was a big turning point. And then David joined me and he was a, a brilliant, brilliant technician from uh, the UK. So there's like these different timeline moments that have come along to the business, but we've been focused on doing the same thing over and over again and, and making it better and making it better. But these, the, I guess the, 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 the big things were the truck, the move to Colleen Castle and then the people, because the people make it, you know, our business doesn't work without the people, the right people. And then we had Mark join us there recently and he's been a completely different element to the business. He's brilliant, a really good thinker. And, um, and so, yeah, all these different people that we've brought in over time have just been the right people at the right time to kind of drive it on. Not serious. And I read somewhere that 20%, and it might be more now, is from people outside of Ireland come to get fit. Now that step might be throw away, but. No, it's, it, that's probably growing to be fair. And it's funny because people seek you out and, and uh, we're high 80s based on referral rates. So we're like 87, 88% referral rate. So 87 or 8% is our business is, is referral, direct referral. And it's the hardest one to get and it's the diff most difficult one to keep. But that happens because if somebody comes from abroad, they usually tell somebody else and then somebody else comes. So like if you go into our place, you'll see a globe on the desk and there's a flag in every place where we send clubs on the globe. Um, and we've we've clubs all over the world um, and then because we, we we work with UPS we can ship anywhere and so this morning we had 27 boxes ship out and some of them are Irish but the majority of them are going abroad and we're the only you know small golf retailer exporting because uh, Guaranteed Irish wants to know how we ship in so many boxes out so and it's just because we have like a broad base of people all around the world but yeah I'd say it's higher than that now so that's what the company wise has gone through massive change over since 1997. Uh, the golf industry itself, right? So 
I'll try and keep it high level and broad because this, well, I could talk for hours about this kind of stuff. This could be a 25 hour <laughs> podcast. <laughs> People who are looking for longer podcasts, this one could be it. <laughs> Gentle. Um, no, is there any one product that you have said that you have seen change the industry? So for me, I like iconic. What's yours? Um, mine would have been the R7. Yeah. Telemate R7. That was I was cutting in the hinge, so it would have been two thousand six. Yeah. Ish. Yeah. There's been a couple of iconic products that have come through that have like kind of gone, gee, wow, that's unbelievable. Um, I would probably say SLDR from TaylorMade was one of those clubs. It was it, because it was the start of the high launch, low spin story. Although Cleveland had a product called High Bore, which was before that. That's right. Which was a high launch, low spin product, but it, it just didn't have the right traction. It looked terrible. But that was in that frame where you were trying to launch the ball higher and spin the ball lower because everything wanted to spin. And there used to be our challenge on tour was to get the ball flight flat. So that's where you had you know golfers playing 6.5 and 7.5 degree drivers. Um, and now they're playing 10 degrees. So the lofts come up because the spins come down. But I would say SLDR was the first time that we started to see drivers that could launch the ball really high and spin it low. Now, God love you if you hit it off center because it was Oscar Bravo. It was, it was, you were in that pro. You your said, face, the path was not on point. <laughs> if it was on. even anything slightly <laughs> offline, you were gone. And I remember, I remember working at Wentworth and had a pro in Wentworth who should remain nameless, but he's like, dude, this thing is like 300 yards. But if I miss it, it's like 500 yards straight right. And I said, yeah, but that, that dems the risks. <laughs> um, and I think another, <clears throat> another product which I remember changed things was Callaway's Great Big Bertha. The very, very, very first one. Uh, when I was first in the industry, I remember that coming in through Bat Murphy in Cork. He was the importer for Callaway. Yeah, I'm trying to think, was that a move from Steelhead to carbon fiber? Or no, that was no. first titanium. Correct. Yeah. <clears throat> first titanium. And that, and that changed then the whole topography of golf equipment because it allows you to go bigger in head. If you go bigger in head, you can increase the, the mass, which then you can change, start to change MOI. And, and the coefficient resolution. And, and COR, right. Yeah. And then we used to have, like I was around when we had Kevlar drivers and we had all sorts of crazy this materials. This is from the NASA space Oh yeah, station. this is coming straight from NASA. So it was like, yeah, this thing is, this. and I, I remember being exposed to all that kind of stuff. But I think Great Big Birth, the original one, was the, was the turning point. In terms of irons, <clears throat> I mean, iconically, I would say P790 from TaylorMade changed uh, so much uh, because it was a fusion of materials or PXG did a very similar thing in terms of that fusion of metal and polycarbonates and, and plastics and, and making stuff that it was flexing more and shaping more. And, um, and, that, and that was quite a big change up. Um, I'm trying to remember heads that we would have had that came in and was like, oh my God. I remember actually we did a, a club from McGregor uh, called the V-Foil. And this was a club that was designed by a guy called Don White, who'd be like this iconic club uh, designer slash maker. He's still making clubs now. And uh, I remember we built four sets for uh, Ola Thabal. And uh, the guy from McGregor called me and said, I need you to build some four sets for me for Ola Thabal. I said, yeah, absolutely. I know him well, no problem. Um, and I'll get him to you and you can meet him and do the spec and all. I said, yeah, so we did all the fitting and met Ollie and these heads arrived then for me to build. I'm like, oh my God, where can we get like 25, 30 sets of this? This stuff is awesome. 
and we did we got these v-foils sent into us and it was combo sets so blades and, ca and cavities and then full sets of cavities and i still have some sets actually they were absolutely fantastic beautiful steel and i don't think many people knew about them um and they were gorgeous they changed a lot because that was that was when you started to introduce yourself to really good quality forgings so the quality of the steel was unbelievable and over time it's got better because now companies are using better steel and putting quality in um, grain flow and all that real tech stuff well yeah it's it's it's, it's who, who makes your steel and then how do you refine it and then how do you make it and how do you blend it and, and what comes out at the end and like Mizuno do that extraordinarily well as do you know Mura or some of the Strixon products the key is knowing which of the products is and where it's been made and who's making it and is it you know as it's supposed to be and that's when you know we would have good reconnaissance on where it's coming from and what's working and what's good and, and how it applies. But yeah, over time, actually another good club is TaylorMade's 200 steel. Do you remember the 200 steel? Yeah. That fairway, fairway wood. Oh, yeah. that was first low CG, thin thin face, and then like low, low center of gravity and like even and that thing used to come out. And then I think in fairway woods, rocket balls. When rocket balls came out from I TaylorMade. I skipped them, yeah. Oh I my God, they were, like they were Armageddon, Armageddon. <laughs> I remember standing on the range when they first launched and uh, I'm looking at these ball fights coming out and I'm thinking that's going 260, 270 yards because you can, there's a trick if you're on the range if you count in seconds. So one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000. You get up to about eight, it's over 300 yards. I think I get to about six. <laughs> Four. Um, Thanks. Uh, welcome. But yeah, so you used to be counting to see how far it was going. And these were things were flying like drivers because the faces were so you know flexible. And the flexible face story that came from Adams. And that was when we started to see big changes in ball speed and so forth. But yeah, I could go on forever. There's loads. No, no <clears> yeah, definitely. Um, so next steps, right? Because we're hitting the end of people's commute, Mac. Right, so what's, I would have seen 2018 as year of the ball. So TP5 went big and Pro V1 kind of switched around what they were branding stuff as. And you had the whole Gorilla Golf Ball influx of the likes of IU Seed, <coughs> the Cut Golf and um, what's the other one? Vice. That was 2018. Yeah. This, this year, kind of raw materials, like we were saying before, where I press a card. So mm. like, in golf clubs, um, different use of materials, speed foam, etc. What's next year? What's 2020 going to be the year of? Or can you tell me? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I would, I would say, you're going to see a lot more stability in the way things are designed. So the, I think speed is going to be tough to, to crack now because, you know, they're going to be starting to pull in, you know, better aerodynamics and the, the complexity with aerodynamics and flow around the club is you've got a big flat front. So it's like saying, I'm going to make a truck more aerodynamic Well, you've got a big front on it. So that's going to be complicated, but it's to try and create less drag, <clears throat> make the, the, the club move through the air better. So that's going to be a, that's been that's really the only way you're going to get more speed from it. So I think they're going to chase more of a stability story. So I think it's going to be the story of a moment of inertia or uh, keeping the club stable. Because the complexity is when you start to lower spin or lower flight and make the golf ball behave a certain way by forcing uh, CG or center of gravity in a certain place and making the ball spin low, which is what a lot of the clubs are doing now, 
the complexities on off-center misses means that because there's less backspin, there could be more off-plane spin, so you will miss it if there's less. So in other words, if you hit your, if you hit your driver and you spin it and it goes really high, chances are you'll hit fairways, but it won't be very long. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is because backspin negates side spin or off-plane spin, so it stays straighter. So if you lower that spin rate, so there's less spin on the ball and you don't quite clip it or catch it, they're trying to try and make the club heads more susceptible to off-center hits. So more forgiving, I guess, is the story that you're going to see. Um, and, uh, and the gas thing is in golf industry, the needle doesn't move that much that quick. Um, and you're going to see a lot more design coming into things. It's not just going to be, you know, we change the color and rock and roll. There's going to be the smart people out there and the smart people in the industry who are going to be driving this, you know, move to better. You know, get it better. How do we make it better? How do we redesign it? How do we change it? How do we, you know, but stay inside the rules, which is already complex. So I'm going to see. I'm going to say my bet: more stable, better consistency of strike, um, and sort of a more forgiveness story. I think speed's going to be complicated to, to improve on because I think it's right on the edge of it right now in terms of we haven't gone far enough in materials yet to make it that much quicker. Yeah, because I was listening to. Um, <clears throat> I think it was um, Chris Trott's bonus podcast with yeah Trotty and Taylor made um, yeah, with, yeah it was his bonus podcast with um, Brandle mm. when Brandle was saying when he was on tour it was all around uh, being accurate and now it's all about being big long yeah, well, that's, well, yeah but the next phase is being long but within the tram lines and try and keep it on, on path online yeah that, that is that is complex because you know that's and then, and that's probably to to a point where the older players you know were so I did a lot of work with Woosnam and still see see him regularly enough and they, when the ball flight changed and, and the ball flight got higher with lower spin it ruined him because he couldn't shape the ball and he couldn't keep the ball flight down because he was used to firing it in the air and he was incredibly strong. You've no idea this guy was the strongest human you've ever seen. You could hear it, you could feel the... I could always tell when he was hitting balls because they're on the range because you could feel the vibration through the ground. You go, who's he must be hitting balls somewhere? Oh, there he is. You know, so he 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 said it ruined him when the, when the, when the ball changed and the clubs changed along with it. Like, everyone blames the ball and I think it was... I don't think it was the ball's fault. I think it was just progression of progression of of technology. And I don't mm. think you could. I don't think we should wade the ball back. I think it should be Armageddon. I think for amateur golf, it should be whatever you want. Forward. Go at it, have at it, and let's get people hitting the ball as far as possible and as high as possible, as long as whatever it is. And in the pro game, then do whatever you want to do. Rein it in like Formula One, or you all got to play the same thing, or this play this or whatever. But in the amateur game, it should be madness. But the. Chamley's right what it was happening was <clears throat> it was so hard to keep it straight and hit it long you were either one or the other you were either straight down the middle or you were miles up the fairway and now I think the equipment is starting to come around around this whole stability thing to try and create this consistency for people in amateur game in amateur golf that's our job our job in, in, in for golf is to create this maximum amount of distance but keep it you know somewhat in play and that's just a matter of designing it around the players miss and how they don't hit the ball well or where they miss it in the face or where they or where they, where they struggle with and really rejig or redesign the club around that fault so there's less fault um, like you said before um, 
block off 50% of the course and then it's an easier course to play. Right, and we and that's a tour thing. We used to have players come to us having a panic moment and missing it left and I'd say, we'll just, we'll just jack the driver, we'll put a big load of weight in the toe, we'll stiffen up the tip in the shaft, we'll shorten it down. And the caddy goes, what does that mean? And I said, well, the ball won't go left on its own. And he went, what do you mean? I said, well, it won't go left. He'll have to really yank it to go left. And the caddy went, perfect. 50% less to the golf course, let's rock and roll, made the cut. Yeah. Yeah. So you can do that. And that's just a matter of manipulating the club to suit the miss or suit the, suit the way the player plays. And that, so our job is to make it more consistent through design. On tour, it's about trying to get those long and straight by, you know, ball slash equipment. So yeah, I'd say they're trying to get the, the ball to go really far and really straight. Easy. On its own. <laughs> on its own. Don't need anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the tea with the remote. Did you not find the button? Is. The button's on the end of it, I used yeah. to say. <laughs> <laughs> so come here to me and uh, before we get into this QA, we can find you on um We're everywhere. We're everywhere, everywhere. Paddy. Paddy, we're, we're everywhere. everywhere. We're, we're like you, we're everywhere. I'm not everywhere, I just try to be. Um hang on to people's coattails. Um Facebook, Instagram, I have them on the show notes below. Yes. Um, number one Irish golfing YouTube yeah, show. Yeah, that, 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 you know what that's like, that YouTube thing is crazy. We, we, we decided to do it just to try and give people a better understanding and a steer and it, took, brilliant. And it took off. Um, and, but it's brilliant. all fitting information because you don't want to know you know what, what, is, what is it made of or what the groove does or you want to know who's who playing it and so the what or the where and the how. Uh, and so that YouTube channel, For Golf Custom, uh, it just gives people a bit of a steer about how we're using the product and how we're fitting with it and what type of players it's suiting and then type of shafts that go with it. So it's a good reference guide for people to figure out what's going on and it's 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 huge actually. It's it's bigger in the States than it is in, in, in Ireland, which is mad. They must like the dulcet tones of the Irish. This is the lovely Nace, Nace accent. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't survive with my... Um... Nace slash Nashville. <laughs> so come here to me. You used to be a DJ, so you should fly through the first question. There's a lot of pressure riding on it now. Okay. Right? Yeah. Uh, quick fire Q&A. Everyone who's been on the podcast is subject to this. It also notes the end of the podcast. So. First, are you ready for it though? I don't know. Okay. Well, Do we have to go with this? Yeah. yeah okay, okay. Yeah, tough. Uh, <laughs> right. What would your walk-on sound be? Walk on to the, onto the course. Onto the first tee. Oh. You're walking into the workshop in Photograph Custom. What song is that? Oh, that's a tough one. And my dad would be that song, Shaft. You're damn right. But no, I'm not going to. That's his song. So my song is... Uh, Earth, Wind and Fire. The band is Earth, Wind and okay. Fire. And... Uh, What's their song? I can't, I can't think of it now. It'll be their number one. Uh, yeah, I guess it would be. I have to. I'd have to come back to you on that. I've, <laughs> I, had, I've I, had a mind blank. I'm I, in golf mode, and you're asking me about music. <laughs> I'll fire it. I'll be, yeah, it'll be under your dulcet tones now for the rest of it. Oh really? Okay. okay yeah. I'll, I'll 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 figure it out after. But it's an Earth Wind and Fire track, and it's called I can't remember, but I'll figure it out. Jim or pizza. Oh, was pizza now, Jim? Unfortunately, getting old. No, no, no fear. Me too. Um, I I go to the gym in between pizzas. That's what I say. All right. Yeah. Uh, hat visor or bucket hat? Oh, hat. Happy Gilmore or tin cup? Uh, tin cup. Guinness or Heineken? Uh, Guinness if I had to. Lahinch or Port Marnock? Oh, Port Marnock. Walk or cart? Oh, cart all day. 
that's the end coming out you know yeah win the masters or win the open masters all day do you, do you want to drive it like dustin johnson or drive it like zach johnson oh dustin johnson it's all about the distance <laughs> baby in <Instagram>. jacket up <laughs> instagram or twitter uh i like twitter but i'm having to do more instagram it's complicated which do you prefer uh i prefer twitter there you go play or practice oh practice same that's it you're true that's it that's it oh my god thanks for thank you very much for your time it's always a pleasure speaking no it's absolutely my pleasure i'm i'm gutted that i can't remember the name of that song but it will come to me and i will make sure that you get it right (laughs) thanks patty really appreciate it i love what you do love the fact it's your irish you know i'm a big ireland ink man so love stuff that's all ireland um so and you know thanks for having me on i really appreciate it and uh keep up the good work pal and merry christmas and same to you yeah sandy's coming bring the big box hopefully bring you a new telemate driver hopefully <laughs> so that was Derek Murray of For God Custom what a great workshop and setup they have there in Killian Castle love talking with the guy love talking golf his enthusiasm is infectious that podcast could literally have been the longest podcast in the world um, but that wraps up season one of Paddy Talks it's been fantastic doing this show every week since we launched during the Irish Open thank you all for listening and pressing play wherever you do listen to this podcast please leave, do leave a review and uh, we'll get back with you with more shows with more stories from Irish golf from pros we will actually have some fitness people on it in season two some people have especially asked me to get them on so we're looking at you Niels, Robbie Cannon and etc and uh, David Fitzdown and Tree will be talking to you over the Christmas um, at a high stool, possibly. Um, but yeah, share the show with all your family and friends. A very Merry Christmas to you all. Thank you for pressing play. Until we teed up again soon, I'm Paddy. Mm-hmm.